I want to invite you to take your Bibles, and we're going to Titus chapter 3, and I want to look at the theme of how we can live for Christ in a world that is growing increasingly hostile towards him. Not long ago, America was a land of Christian values. Even in our own lifetime, that was the case. The typical family used to find themselves on a church pew on Sunday morning. There were those, of course, that didn't go to church, but they weren't hostile towards Christians. They were just indifferent. You could say that 30, 40, 50 years ago, the winds were at the backs of Christians. I've told you before that my grandfather was a Cadillac salesman his entire life. And you would be able to look at a guy like Christy Artavanis and say, even if you weren't a believer, you can trust Christy. He's a Christian man. Being a Christian at that point was good for business. It was good for job applications. It was good for university applications. Even I was laughing uh, with someone back then, or Ken, I think I was talking to you a couple weeks ago that on your job interview, they asked you what religion you were, what church you were a part of. And that's the world that we grew up in. But those winds that were once at our backs, pushing us forward, are now blowing steadily in our faces as those who were once indifferent to the claims of the Bible and of the Christian faith have become indignant over the thought that an invisible God gets to govern your morality, shape your choices, and tells you who your body belongs to. Your dollar bill might say, in God we trust. But if you trust in the scripture as as the highest authority in your life, then you will be detested and despised and undesired in the workplace, in universities, and in your neighborhoods. The USA might be the home of the free and the brave, but if you bravely claim that Jesus is the only way to God, this world is increasingly growing hostile to you and this country. I want to give you a flavor for this. And I'm not a doomsdayer. I want to give you just a, a sampling And in doing so, I want to gird you with excitement that God has called you to live in such a time as this. And to give you a flavor for this, I want to point to the hearings of a man named Russ Vaught. Russ was applying for the deputy director of management and budget position within the U.S. government. And in his interview, he's being cross-examined by a senator. And I want you to listen to this dialogue that takes place in this interview for Russ Vaught. It says this, this is the senator asking him a question. I said, he says, I understand that you are a Christian, but the United States is not composed of people that are just that. I understand it's a majority religion, but there are others of different religions here and around the world. Do you think that those who are not Christian are to be condemned? First of all, this is a theological question and has nothing to do with a governmental interview. Russ Vaught responds and says, thank you for probing on that question, Senator. As a Christian, I believe all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. The senator responds and gets somewhat agitated. He says, you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and stand condemned. Do you think that's respectful of other religions? First of all, what the senator is bringing to attention is that this person applying, Russ Vaught, had written an article previously for a private Christian high school on the centrality of Jesus Christ and salvation. The senator had taken that piece, that article he had written, brought it to the interview, and is now using that against him. And Russ responds and says, Sir, I wrote a post based on being a Christian for a Christian school on the centrality of Jesus Christ. The senator responds, and he looks left and he looks right. You can watch it on YouTube. And points at his fellow senators and says, 
I would simply like to say that this nominee is simply not what our country is all about. That senator's name is Bernie Sanders. And he was votes away from becoming the most powerful man in the world. And he believes that if you believe Jesus Christ is the only way to God, you're not what this country is all about. But this is all too common. Just ask Kelvin Cochran, who was the Atlanta fire chief, who taught a Sunday school class on biblical sexuality and was suspended as the fire chief, put into sensitivity training for his radical beliefs. And then upon arrival back from his sensitivity training, he was let go. Don't believe Calvin Cochran or Russ Vaught, then maybe Walter Tutka, who's a substitute teacher and walks up to a kid who's last in line and says, don't worry, kid, the last will be first and the first will be last. The kid says, what's that from? And he says, it's from the Bible. Want to look at mine? Parents get outraged. What happens to Walter Tutka? Well, he's suspended. What happens to, even in our Ivy League system, I was reading recently on Wednesday of an Ivy League professor who says, Christians have been the the uh, really, the, the difficult people in the past, they've been the oppressors, and it's time for us to oppress them for everything they've done. Or even Megan Fox, the star of the movie Transformers, was asked years back, what would you do, Megan, in an interview, if there was a real Transformer coming to destroy planet Earth? And Megan Fox responds and says, I'd barter with him. And the interviewer laughs and says, okay, what would you offer him? I'd say instead of destroying the whole planet, why don't you just take out and kill all of the white trash, anti-gay Christians in middle America? And the interviewer chuckles. This is the world we live in. We are exiles. And even at times we forget that this world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. But this world is not our home. We are passing through. And if you're a Christian... You are a part of those who walk a narrow road. And the promise by God is not that you'll receive material prosperity this life, but you will face hostility. Jesus makes you a promise. The world will hate you. I think I need to also clear something up. Even in my move to Tennessee, people have come up to me and said, yeah, it's good to get out of California. I just want to tell you, I would never have left California just to leave California because it was growing radical. I would have gone down with the ship because in five, 10 years, we're going to be sending missionaries there. I, I want you, I'm so grateful though, to live in a place that's more familial and there's more families and there's better schools and whatnot, but I'm not trying to flee from my God given responsibility to engage the lost. And the reality is we're likely five, 10 years behind California, unless there's a revival in our country, which I pray for. I pray that God does a great movement, but I want you to understand fundamentally, this world is not our home. It will never be our home. And we will always be exiles in a world that is hostile towards the truth because churches might claim to be churches, but if you're not preaching biblical sexuality and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that's not a church. And so here we are at Stonebridge Bible Church and I want to give you a proper perspective on how we live in such a world, because I can promise you this. The responsibility of Christians is not to holy huddle and to shake their fingers and shake their heads at the dying world around them. I'll tell you, that's not the DNA of this church. I might be thankful that we're convictionally aligned, but our responsibility until Jesus Christ comes or until he takes us home 
is not to play it safe. We're on offense. We're not on defense. Jesus says, I will build my church and the what will not prevail? Gates of hell. What are gates? Those are defensive mechanisms. You know why? Because the church is on the advance. And at times, even in our own culture, we'll read about this and we'll go, man, defense, defense, defense. Let's not change. Let's not become like them. Let's stay away from them. And there's a truth in protecting your own kids. I'm about to have my second and I understand that. But I'm gonna train my daughter that she is to be a beacon of light in a world of darkness. The light doesn't gather and talk about how how dark the world is. The light gathers and strategizes on how they can exploit and transform the darkness. But how can we live in such an environment? Well, thankfully, the Bible is unfailingly relevant. And it speaks to the question such as this. How can we live in a world where people are hostile towards the truth? Paul is going to tell us in Titus 3, But before I read Titus 3 again, I want to give you a little bit of context. Titus is a Greek man on the Greek island of Crete. And he's there in a sea of paganism. And it says from history and from the beginning of Titus that Cretans are lazy, they're violent. And one more thing, the Cretans are liars. They are deceivers. In fact, one of the Greek words for being a liar is kretizo, which literally means to be a Cretan. But Paul is going to introduce himself in chapter one by saying that he anchors his hope in the God who cannot, anybody know? Lie. Into a world of lies and deception. Sound familiar? Where it's hard to know what to believe? Into a world of lies and confusion, Paul introduces himself as a servant of the God who cannot lie. And Paul is going to give Titus an important work to do. What was that work? It was to set up elders throughout the churches or in the churches throughout the island. God had set up healthy churches in this culture that was totally depraved. Now, much of the book has to do with Christians proving the power of the gospel by the way they live, meaning that they're so different from the world that the world looks at them and knows they're different. And the focus initially is how they are to internally conduct themselves. Titus 2 is focused on the training and the love that takes place in the local church. Older men, you know your responsibility? Train the younger men. Bottom line, younger men, you know what you need to do? Find an older man to shape your life. Older women, you're to train the younger women. Younger women, you find an older woman and you both, watch this, need each other. Because churches are supposed to be multi-generational, not just so that it's one way. It's because old people can tend to, scripturally speaking, pool their cantankerousness. And young people can gather and they pool their what? Their ignorance. And so what old people and young people need are each other. Because the 20-year-old or the 15-year-old gets to go to the old man and say, hey, I need you in the fight. You're not retired from this. You need to double down. And the old person goes to the young person and says, can I, can I walk this road with you? Can I show you the truth? Now, chapter two is internally focused. The way they relate to each other within the church is its own testimony to the world. But after Paul has approached how they're to internally conduct themselves, he's moving on in chapter three to how they are to externally conduct themselves in a dying, dark, and depraved world. Now, remember with me, Titus is in an environment of gross sexual sin. There's brothels on the corner. It's no big deal for you to be an adulterer. There's liars, there's beasts, there's murderers. Sin was not only allowed, but applauded. 
Remember Romans 1? They not only give permission, but they give hearty approval of those who partake in sin. Sound familiar? Right now, if you want to get applause from our culture, just be as deviant as possible and you'll be celebrated. And this is the world Titus lives in. Now, the scripture knows our temptation. God knows the propensities of our heart. He knows the temptation for you to turn on the news, to drive past a pride parade, and to go like this. <sighs> what are they thinking? What are they thinking? Well, the scripture is going to tell you what you should be thinking this morning. It's not to view the world with contempt. It's to view those who are lost with compassion. Paul is going to give you in the book of Titus and the living word of God speaks as clear today as it did 2,000 years ago. He's going to give you four critical truths so that you can live for Christ in a hostile world. You ready? Number one, you are to remember your civil duty in verses one and two. Titus three verses one and two says, remind them to be subject to rulers to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all men. One word on this first word, Paul says to remind them in chapter three, verse one. And this is a good reminder for us. The Christian life and the Christian church are not calls for us to be innovative. I'm not trying to come up with any new strategies on what to say up here than what's been done for the last 2000 years. If you ever hear a pastor say, I've got an original thought, run. I don't have any original thoughts. What we do when we look at God's word, Stonebridge, is we look to what is old and we seek to understand that truth. And then we beg for God's spirit to impress that truth upon our life so that we're conformed to its reality. We're not looking for anything new. We're to be reminded at times of what we even already know, which is why we celebrate communion this morning. It's because we're reminding ourselves of the truth we already claim. And those reminders are to enable us to live for Christ. When Calvin lay on his deathbed, he was surrounded by the men he had sh shared his life with. And his final words to the dudes he had invested in was avoid innovation. This is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1.13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter was a preacher. And I just want to get this out of, you know, out of the gate you know, and I'm in week six here at Stonebridge. You're going to hear me say a number of the same things a lot, right? Every pastor you've ever heard has things they say, and you're like, God, oh, it's this thing. Well, do you understand that Jesus had his thing? Peter had his thing. And it's to stir you up by way of reminder because truths need to be ingrained into your heart and mind. You don't just hear something and you go, got it. I'm going to live by that. And that's going to be my conviction for the rest of my life. When you come here, there's going to be a reoccurring theme that appears. It's like a film score. You know, I listen to film scores while I study, and there's different things that come up over and over again. If you ever listen to the Finding Nemo soundtrack, Thomas Newman. And I can pick out Thomas Newman in any movie now because I know the musical notes he listens to or he, he puts into his scores. And in a Christian, we have different things, different melodies that should hit us every single week about who we are and what we're called to be. Now, why are Christians to remember their civil duty. Well, Paul's first reminder is to instruct the people that Christians aren't rioters or picketeers when it comes to how we operate civilly, but we are to submit. It's a subject to rulers. Now we do this because this world is in our home, number one. And number two, submission in a godly sense 
is a weapon that Christians wield in an ungodly culture. To give you an example for this, you need to understand that at the time Paul is writing to Titus, the world is under the regime of Rome. And a Roman centurion could go up to any single citizen, tap them on the, so- on the shoulder with his spear. I mean, just imagine that blade right here. And you were legally obligated by that tap to carry his armor for up to a mile. Now, a Cretan would have done that begrudgingly, but only the Christian would do that gladly because they would get to the end of mile one and begin mile number two, continue walking. The centurion would be shocked. What are you doing? And the Christian would say, mile number two is my opportunity to tell you about the hope I have in Jesus Christ. This creates opportunities for gospel advancement. Now, maybe you're asking, what if they tell us to do something that contradicts the Bible? What's the answer? And we don't do it because the law of God always supersedes the law of man. But our duty before the watching world, as it relates to the civic sphere, seven things right here, we are to be in number one in verses one and two, obedient to be ready for every good deed, ready for every good deed. Doesn't mean you're reluctant to do good deeds. It means you're ready anticipation. It's the drop of the hat type of thing. Like I want to reach people to malign no one question for you. How many people are you biblically allowed to slander? I got the answer. Zero. Including those who are opposed to the truth of the gospel. Understand that one of your greatest testimonies to a dying world is that the Christian never gossips, never slanders, and never maligns. The way to be sure you blend in with the culture around you is to be a slanderer. But the happy man we, we talked about two weeks ago is one who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers and slanders. Now it says then to not be contentious. It says to be gentle, showing consideration for everyone. This is total humility, being others minded, even in the public sphere. Meaning that Christian neighborhoods where a Christian lives, they should have the greatest block parties because godly neighbors want to reach their neighbors and they also want to know that we not only hold to our convictions, but we serve a God of great joy. That's why my dad was always so intent on throwing block parties because he wanted all the neighbors to know that, yeah, I preach the truth, I proclaim the truth, but you better believe we have joy. And so it says to show consideration for everyone, which means you're actually considering those around you. So we remember our duty But the question persists, how do we live without growing resentful or even angry towards the lost? How can we live winsomely and kindly towards those who oppose the one we stand for and are against the one we love the most? Well, number two, we are to remember who we were in verse three. It says in verse three, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. The only way that the children of light don't become hostile towards the children of darkness is to remember, listen here, you too were once a child in the dark. In contrast to the seven qualities that describe a believer in verses one and two, here Paul is going to give seven vices that describe you in your former condition If you're a Christian, this is a comprehensive and crushing analysis of your life before God intervened. It says, number one, for we also once were, first of all, foolish ourselves. This means that the lights weren't on in your own mind. You were ignorant. Spurgeon says, we refused warnings of sin 
because we dreamed that sin was pleasant and profitable. It says we are foolish ourselves. Secondly, it says we are disobedient. This is a distinctive mark of the unbeliever. They knew what they ought to do, but did what they wanted to do instead. And even when their own conscience preaches a sermon to their soul, they reject it and they continue to live in disobedience, knowingly and unknowingly. It says third, that we were deceived. This means that we were easy prey for false teaching. The same word for deception used here is the word that Plato used to use to describe wandering stars with no fixed anchor. And you were so formerly deceived by every single wind and wave of doctrine, you believed whatever came your way and you had no fixed leash to truth. But contrastly, and how you had no fixed anchor to truth, you had a fixed leash to sin. Because fourth here, it says that you were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Can I tell you something? Before Christ saved you, if you're a Christian, sin was not a side relationship. It wasn't a pocket of your life. You were enslaved to sin, in bondage, and sin is a cruel master. It rules those who serve it. It says then that we were fifth, malicious. This just means that you had a selfish, or fourth, you had a selfish disposition towards other people. You used hurtful and harmful words. It says that you were envious next because this is a distinctive mark and hallmark of an unbeliever. You hated when other people had what you wanted and you hated when other people had what you had because you wanted to be the only person that had what you had because you wanted to be better than everyone else. You were envious, malicious, and then watch this cycle. It says hateful, hating one another. You are hateful because you are self-centered. And you are hated by everyone else because they also too were self-centered and hate is a vicious cycle of hate. And Paul says, and Jesus Christ in his Holy Spirit looks at you through his word this morning and says, you once were this way. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? Or have you ever seen yourself in this category? Have you ever Seriously, consider this. Have you ever seen yourself in the light of foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hateful, and hated? Have you ever looked at your life under the MRI of scripture and said, that's me? I want you to understand in any Christian context, it's not just because this is the Bible belt, in any Christian context, hell is full of people that theologically affirm their own depravity. There are people with PhDs in the doctrine of sin that died in their sin because they merely theologically affirmed the reality that they're not perfect and I'm only human and for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not enough to theologically assent to the truth. You must see yourself in the category that scripture gives and read this list and go, that's my life before Christ. I remember when I wanted to get baptized when I was 14, and this is why baptism matters for even discussing 
what we believe. Because I remember at 14, knowing the truth, even knowing how to put on a good show in regards to understanding my sin. I remember hearing the people's testimony of them. You know, this guy that got saved in jail, he was in there for 30 years. And I went, man, my testimony will never live up to that. And I remember, and maybe you've done the same thing. My testimony is nothing crazy. I grew up in a, what? Christian home. It displays a massively flawed thinking. Because you need to understand that if you're a Christian, God did as much of a miracle in your life as he did in Jeffrey Dahmer's, the serial killer. And if you don't think that, you might not understand the gospel. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 that he used to be a persecutor and a violent aggressor, but he did it ignorantly in unbelief. Meaning that Paul is saying, I didn't know any better. Paul is looking at you and saying, when you look at the world and when you look at the news and when you look at your phone, all of the sin, all of the abortion, all of the homosexuality, all the LGBTQ plus, plus, plus movement is because sinners are doing what sinners do. They don't do or know any better. Paul is saying, I used to act ignorantly in unbelief. Ephesians 4.18 says the same thing. It says that the Gentiles, watch this, that's anybody who doesn't know God, are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Paul is saying, scripture is saying, Jesus Christ is saying, unbelievers don't think clearly. And do you know what? Neither did you, apart from the grace of God. Neither did you. We use terms and phrases like that man is seeking God. He's almost there. He's seeking. No, no man seeks after God. Romans 3. All are sinful. There's no one righteous, not even one. You might look at the world and observe the insanity of it all and just say they need to understand. They just need to be educated that the baby is actually a baby within the womb. Then they'll understand that abortion is so wrong. Do you understand that 99.6% of doctors today don't even try to fight the reality that a baby is a baby within a womb that support abortion? They say that baby is a human, but not a person. Oh, well, if they understood that the body is meant, you know, it's, it's just obvious in biology that a man belongs with a woman, then they would understand. No, they, they think they're God. And so they get to do whatever they want with their bodies, What you need to understand that education isn't the solution for ignorance. Let me ask you this. Who pushes the gay agenda? Who pushes abortion rights? What's the answer? The brightest minds in the world at Ivy League schools. The scholars of the world are those who are most oblivious to what is most obvious to a 13-year-old who reads the scripture and God shines the light and helps them to understand the plain reading of the Bible. Increased education apart from Christ fuels increased ignorance because education can become a God of in itself so that people think they don't need God. Maybe as I've described your former condition of believers when they were unsaved, you think, not me, I've never done this or that. But I must remind you that wickedness, greed, and lust are often restrained by their environment and by pride. I remember at times resisting sin or temptation, even the opportunities to sin. I was working at a restaurant, was proposed to kind of be a part of something I shouldn't have been a part of. And my response wasn't like Joseph that says, I can't do this sin against God. 
my, my response was, this would ruin my dad's reputation. Spurgeon says this, we have not always been so bad as others because we could not be. A certain boy has run away from home. Another boy remained at home. Is he therefore a better child? Listen, he had broken his leg and could not get out of bed. That takes away all of the credit of his staying at home. Meaning that sometimes your diversion from depravity is not because you have a genuine affection for God, but because you have a genuine affection for your own reputation. And so the scripture helps us to understand that even potentially between your background of growing up in a solid church, memorized verses and familial pedigree, you've never seen yourself in the light of the scripture. So scripture always helps us to understand that the foolishness listed in the Bible is not just our bad works that directly oppose God, but also our good works by which we think we are deserving and earning the favor of God. The foolishness in your life could look like Luke 15 as the prodigal in the pig pen, Or it could be Luke 18 as the Pharisee saying, God, I thank you. I'm not like that guy. Careful attendance to church and the checklist of morality is one of the most subtle forms potentially of rejecting and rebelling against God because you think you deserve his favor. I want you to understand something you did God no favors by coming to God. And neither did I. Lost sheep don't seek shepherds. Shepherds seek lost sheep. So true believers recognize themselves as those who were once lost. And because of this, listen here. They do not see and look at the world with contempt and bitterness, but they look at those who are lost with compassion and love because they understand that apart from the intervening and initiating grace of God, you would be just like them. Maybe some of these sins weren't yours in actuality, but in potentiality they are because you outside of God are not any better than the captain of the pride parade. Do you understand that? You are not more, you're not a four-star recruit for God's kingdom. And he obviously picked you. You were foolish. I was foolish, deceived, disobedient, malicious, envious, hateful, and hated. But as we consider what we were, we're third here, to remember what Christ has done in verses four through seven. It says, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We could spend an entire night. And one day when we teach through Titus, we'll look at these verses in greater depth but I want you to just look at the beginning of verse four. It says, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared. In verse three, he describes our former sinful condition. And then he says, but in the word, what is the gospel by Greg Gilbert? He says, the word, but is small, but it has the power to sweep away everything that came before it. In Ephesians two, it's very similar. It says, you once were dead in your sin 
that you were a child of wrath. You were enemies of God. And then it says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. This is the reality that there's a massive contrast. This reminds us of the intervening and initiating love of God. And it means that we didn't meet God halfway. Sometimes I think that even when we think about our own testimonies, we think that God and I were in opposite end zones and we saw our great need for each other. I need a savior and he needed a recruit for his kingdom. And we saw each other and we ran to meet each other at midfield and he just got there slightly faster. And then we wrapped each other in our arms and it was wonderful. We were both fitting a need. But the reality is Jesus is an initiating savior. He's not apathetic towards the lost. God's not up in heaven going, (laughs) he already knows the answers. Balls in your court, pal. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. And then he says this, I beseech you on behalf of Christ. He uses one of the strongest verbs in the Greek language. He says, I implore you on behalf of Christ because I don't know what your picture of God is, but he's not up in heaven going, huh, huh, I don't care. I'm not even paying attention. It says that God is a begging God, not because he's desperate, but because he does not delight in the punishment of the wicked, but desires all men to come to repentance. And he makes that plea and he implores people to be reconciled to God through his ambassadors. Your most fundamental job on planet earth is to plead with people to be reconciled to God. And if you have not done that, you're living outside of the will of God because you have one job description and I have one job description and it's called kingdom ambassador. And ambassadors aren't, no, our savior's busy. No, our savior loves you and he made a way for you to be right with God. And he's an initiating God. You don't have to earn your way to him. He paid it all. He paid it all. And this is the way we live our life. He came to save those who were described in verse three and he came to seek and save what? The lost. And do you know the way God seeks and saves the lost? Through those whom he has found. Verse five, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Do you believe that? Worship begins here. I did nothing to earn my way to God. But according to his mercy, we just sang merciful and mighty. And then it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Well, it means that God has to give us a new heart. This is spiritual rebirth. But our understanding of spiritual rebirth is always against the backdrop of our former condition. Because if you think lightly upon what you were before Christ, you will always think lightly that the gospel is a flu shot that God gives those who are spiritually diseased instead of a resurrection he gives to those who are spiritually dead. You understand that even in the most famous words ever penned in John three sixteen, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know that. Yeah, I know that. Boom, 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 boom. Two-year-olds know that. But what comes immediately prior to that is that Jesus is describing the Israelites who complained against God and had been snake bit by poisonous serpents in the wilderness. They're all dying and writhing on the desert floor. And Jesus says, back then in Numbers, anyone who looked to the bronze serpent lifted up would be saved. Everyone else will die. And that's exactly what happened in Numbers. They were toxic, bitten, poison infested. 
And Jesus looks at Nicodemus, the most religious man in the world, the teacher of Israel, and says, don't you understand? You have a poison that goes into the depths of your soul far greater than the poison of serpents. You have been poison infested by sin. And unless you look to the one who will be lifted up, you will die. But the whole conversation is about this element of rebirth because Jesus needs to get the religious people to understand something. You don't need to add God. You don't just believe something. What you need is a miracle of God. Because even, I want you to understand this, even the nine-year-olds at Stonebridge Bible Church need a miracle of God for them to become a child of God. You understand that? Which is why we preach with a level of urgency and why every single, we asked for volunteers the other day and I was encouraged that Bo was kind of fired up saying, hey, what what greater opportunity is this? We need people that are fired up because nine-year-olds don't just need to memorize a verse. They need to understand that their heart needs a transformation. They need to have a miracle of God done in their life because every single heart, whether that's a serial killer or a pastor's kid is just as hard to the truth before God does a miracle in it and converts it into a heart of flesh. I travel frequently kind of before I moved here and I was in an Uber and I I don't know if I've told you this story before, so forgive me. I was in an Uber and I asked this guy, I always ask people, hey, do you have any background with the things of the Lord? And he just said, hey, I've been to church five times and the Mormon guy and he describes kind of the distinction. I asked him to describe the distinction between what Protestants believe and what Mormons believe. And I knew a little bit because I've done work on the, you know, understanding how we could even evangelize to those who are Mormon. And he used this example of an iPad. And he said, pretend you want to buy, your daughter wants to buy an iPad. You believe that the father pays it all. Whereas what I believe is that I make my daughter work and 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 work. And at the end of the year, she saved 34 bucks. I remember thinking, man, she's not very hardworking. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the year, she's got 34 bucks and she puts it down on the counter and then I go up and pay the difference. And I was, I mean, it was one of the most, I'll never forget the conversation. And then here's what the Mormon church teaches. And this is just a quote from Mormon doctrine. Grace is an enabling power that allows men and women to take hold of eternal life and exaltation after they have expended their own best efforts. Here's 2 Nephi twenty five twenty three in the Mormon scriptures. We know that it is by grace we are saved, dot, 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 after all we can do. You understand even when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, one of the key distinguishers, even amongst Christians and Catholics, is the word alone. We believe that we're saved by faith and grace, and so do Catholics in the Roman Catholic tradition. The key distinguisher is that we believe we're saved by faith and by grace alone. Mormons believe you're saved by grace, but they believe that grace is extended to you after you've tried your darndest to earn your way to God. And he gives you the final shove as you get to the finish line. But you are not saved by works plus grace. You are saved by grace alone. And so what you need, if you're not a Christian in here, I'm so glad you came. What you need is a miracle of God 
to transform our hardened hearts into holy hearts before him that long to know him. Now watch this in verse six. This is about the Holy Spirit. He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that, purpose clause, anytime you see a so that, circle it. So that being justified by his grace, what happens? We would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you're a Christian, you not only have been saved from your own depravity, you've been made an heir where one day when you get to glory, God will welcome you into his eternal home that he's been preparing for you. And you're not gonna be ushered into a warehouse. Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Meaning when you show up, there's a place for you. And how do we know that? Well, we already discussed it. The Holy Spirit testifies to your own soul. This world is not my home, but I know where my home is. It's in glory. Last thing to note here, when it says being justified by grace, this means that you are reckoned righteous before God, not because you've had a good week, but because you've had a good savior who paid the price for your sin and who clothes you in his righteousness. I'm excited for the fall because we're gonna start walking through some things that are fundamental, but you have to understand in the gospel. And I was telling this to students and this could get lost amongst even older saints. The gospel is not just the forgiveness of your sins because if all you had in the gospel was the removal of your sins, you would never be able to walk into a holy God's house. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So you need not only your sins forgiven, you need to be made righteous. And the righteousness you possess is a righteousness that you don't produce. It's the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. So that's third. Remember the gospel. Number four, and we'll be brief here. As we get ready for communion, we are to remember our calling. Verse eight, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. In Titus 2.5, it says that we're to basically be lights in the world. In verse 8, it describes the same thing. In 2.12, it tells us the same thing. Part of the, the purpose of the gospel is so that the world can see the difference that Jesus makes in our life. Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. And what he means by that is he's just saying to you this morning, there's nothing new here. If you're a Christian, you should look different than the world. You shouldn't watch what they watch. You shouldn't laugh at what they laugh at. There should be a distinction because you were made to glorify God. And here Paul reminds us that the motivation for why we want to honor God and the power by which we honor God are one and the same. Meaning that the gospel is not something that saved you once upon a time. You understand that? The gospel is what motivates you to honor God and it's the same power that enables you because you're not saved by grace and then sanctified by self. You are saved by grace, sustained by grace, obey by grace, and then you wield massive usefulness for God's kingdom by his grace. The Christian life is not hard. It's what? Impossible. You cannot do it on or in your own strength. So you need the grace that God alone provides. And here he says, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. What are the good deeds? Well, it's becoming more like Jesus Christ. But I want you to consider one thing as we close, as we're considering this theme of living for Christ in a hostile world, there is one reason why Jesus left you on planet earth. If his desire was to save you, to be with him, the question that's a lot, I mean, 14 year olds ask this because this is the, uh, you know, if you hey, Jesus saved you so you can be in a relationship with him. 
Okay, so if I'm saved to be in a relationship with him, why doesn't he just take me home now? Sometimes 14-year-olds ask questions that 74-year-olds forget. There is only one reason that you and I have been left on planet Earth. And you might categorize it under the umbrella of glorifying God, which is true. But the chief star in the sky of God's glory, Jonathan Edwards says, is the star of redemption. You were left here so that those who do not know Christ would hear Christ through you. How will they hear without a preacher? Doesn't just apply to the tribes in Papua New Guinea, but also to people that live in Williamson County who do not know Jesus Christ. How will they know without a preacher? Romans 10 asks the question. Answer, they won't. I want you to understand that this is a church and we're going to preach, but it should be full of a thousand preachers. Every single one of you is, is called to be a kingdom ambassador. Because can I just ask you a question and could you ask your own heart this? Can you bear to think upon your former condition? And can you think of God's kindness in your life and then fail to share that with those who are going to, to an eternity in hell? I mean, seriously. I'm excited to see new people here. But I hope that the church growth that you know, happens if it does happen here is not just church shift. You know, 95% of the church growth in America is people leaving one church to go to another church because they like the music or the children's program better. And 5% of church growth, Barner Research says, is because people are actually being reached with the gospel. That's a shame. Invite your neighbors. I hope people come from other churches. That'd be great. But I hope each week we're going, this is Tom. He's my neighbor. And I had to tell him about God's kindness in my life. And I wanted him to come see the family of God that celebrates God's kindness collectively. I need to be done. But I want to pray for us before we have communion. And here's, here's why. When we celebrate communion, I just want to remind you, this is for believers, and Jason and the band are going to come up and just play for us while we partake. There's four stations. You guys can partake of that individually or with your family or even with a fellow saint in the church. But when we celebrate communion, it's, it's both reverent and joyful. We're celebrating that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He rose for our justification, it says in Romans. That God's resurrection is what? We talked about this on Easter the proof that God's wrath, Jesus' resurrection was the proof that God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus' death. We remember that, but when you celebrate communion, I want you to understand, you're also remembering the reality that when Jesus bid you to follow him, it was also a call to come and die. People who die for their faith just reveal that they've already been everyday martyrs because they understood that the Christian life is a life that will be amongst those who are hostile towards them. So we celebrate what Christ has done and then we also recommit and recalibrate our lives going, my life belongs to the Savior who died and bled and rose and intercedes and prepares a home for me in glory. So communion has an end and the means is remembering and the end is honoring Christ with our lives and remembering that the world needs this truth. So let's pray and We'll, Jason will play while we partake and we'll be back in just a few minutes for a closing song after you've already partaken with your family or other saints. God, we love you and we're so thankful for your truth.
God, we pray that we would remember what you've done, Lord, that we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hateful, and hated. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but because of his mercy through the washing and regeneration by which God takes our hardened hearts and gives them hearts of stone. And God, I just pray, I I acknowledge and want to always acknowledge that there are people in here assuredly who do not know you. And so God, I pray that they would call on the only Savior. And Lord, I pray that for those who do know you in here, that they would remember their mission, that we are all kingdom ambassadors because we can't bear to think upon your kindness and holy huddle and shake our heads when the world around us is going to hell, not even knowing the truth. And so Lord, I pray that we would honor you in this way. We thank you as we celebrate what you've done on the cross. And we know God, it is Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God that leads us to ongoing repentance in our life. So would this memory spur on even a a greater love for you this week. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen.